you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. You ever watch when certain people thrive under pressure and others collapse under it? You ever find that some people, when the pressure is on, they respond in accordance? And others, when the pressure is on, they completely fall apart, if you will. What's the difference between those two? Well, this morning we're going to talk about the pressure being on. The pressure is on, believer. And it will continue to be that way. When you look at the horizon and the landscape of our culture, you and I should not be surprised by the many things that we have coming our way. The church has not stood against things like abortion as they ought to have. The church has not stood for morality because even in our churches we have such a prevalency of that. The church has not stood against things that it ought to detest. In fact, it's embraced it and merged it in with grace and said that God was fine with all of it. Well, this morning, as we look at the pressure being on, we need to understand that people like Paul and Barnabas, as we, we continue our, our walk through Acts, they dealt with things that you and I have yet to experience as a culture, as a church, as individuals. So we're going to be looking at three things here in Acts chapter 13. Number one, the setup, verses 13 through 15. Number two, the message. Verses 16 through 41, I promise we will not be going through every single verse. We're going to read through that. We'll be here for a couple hours. And number three, the results, verses 42 through 52. Number one, the setup, verses 13 through 15. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, that would be John Mark, returned to Jerusalem. But when they had departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And as we've re recently discussed in the previous text, we had Sergius Paulus, who's a Roman proconsul, who comes to saving faith simply based on the encounter that Bar-Jesus has, who is somebody that actually had a sway over his life, if you will, as a sorcerer. And he came to saving faith. In fact, what's interesting, and most people don't connect this, there are greater ramifications to his transition, if you will, in ministry for Paul here. Because, listen to what one commentator says about the details in this context. The conversion of Sergius Paulus was, in fact, a turning point in Paul's whole ministry and inaugurated a new policy in the mission to Gentiles, the legitimacy of a direct approach to and full acceptance of Gentiles apart from any distinctive Jewish stance. This is what Luke clearly sets forth as the great innovative development of his first missionary journey. Earlier, Cornelius had been converted apart from any prior commitment to Judaism. And the Jerusalem church had accepted his conversion to Christ. But the Ch Jerusalem church never took Cornelius' conversion as a precedent for the Christian mission and apparently preferred not to dwell on its ramifications. However, Paul, whose mandate was to Gentiles, saw in the conversion of Sergius Paulus further aspects of what a mission to Gentiles involved. 
and was prepared to take this conversion as a precedent fraught with far-reaching implications for his ministry. It is significant that from this point on, Luke always calls the apostle by his Greek name, Paul. You'll see that in the text. A transition's made. And except for 1414, 1512, and 1525, situations where Barnabas was more prominent, always emphasizes his leadership by listing him first when naming the missionaries. For after this, it was Paul's insight that set the tone for the church's outreach to the Gentile world. You see, we have Paul and Barnabas move from Paphos to Perga, where John Mark ends up leaving the team to go back to Jerusalem. In fact, many commentators dispute the reasons for that. You know, in fact, some, some will mention that he was homesick, he wanted to go home, he missed being at home. Others thought it might have been a fear of danger or illness, as some of the commentators actually will state that Paul may have come down with malaria on this journey as he was traveling to Antioch of Pisidia. One other possible reason could very well be the strong ties that he has with the Church of Jerusalem and his direct opposition to the full acceptance of reaching the Gentiles, showing a bit of a bias in ministry. Or maybe it was just possibly a disagreement of whether to go next, and you and I may not agree, and that's what happened here. We don't know exactly. What we do know is that there is a parting, and it seems to be a pretty strong parting of ways. Because later on, Paul and Barnabas, we see in other texts of Scripture, had a contention. Needless to say, as Paul and Barnabas arrive in Antioch of Pisidia, they are sure to visit the synagogue as their custom always was. In fact, they always reached, to the, reached out to the Jewish center to those that were God-fearers, if you will, the Gentiles that participated in Jewish traditions as well. As Constable points out, Luke recorded that the missionaries had contact with seven different types of people here. Synagogue officials, Jews, proselytes, God-fearers, devout women of high standing, Gentiles, and leading men of the city. They reached all levels of society. Now, let's pause for a moment here. How many levels of society have we personally tried to reach? When was the last time you and I took the endeavor to write a letter to our mayor here in Springfield? When was the last time we took the initiative to reach out to, let's say, our governor, Governor Baker? Or to those that are our government officials, President Biden? When was the last time we've done any of those things? You see, as much as we don't admit to this, we are very selective of who we want to reach. And if there's one example that we need to draw from Paul and Barnabas is they weren't afraid who it was that came along, they were going to reach them with the gospel. In fact, what's interesting is when they went to the synagogue service, it would typically start with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, our Lord is one. Which was followed by blessings and prayers. And then two passages from the Old Testament were read, one from the Mosaic Law and the other from the Prophets. Then someone would comment on that and give an address. What's interesting is Paul followed a similar routine in every city, going about to the synagogue first as a matter of priority, to the Jewish people. 
And there are also practical reasons for it. In fact, one commentator says there was, of course, a practical matter involved. If they had begun evangelizing among Gentiles first, the synagogue would have been closed to them. For some reason, what we see here in the text, the synagogue rulers decided to give Paul the floor here. They decided to give him the floor to speak a word of encouragement to the people. So here's a couple practical application points here that are missed sometimes when we read texts like this. First of all, the very people you reach with the gospel, as we saw earlier in the text, Sergius, may very well open the door for you to reach other people with the gospel. That's one thing that's missed by so many. You see, what happens to many, many church folks is we literally try to reach everybody all at once and don't realize that one person may very well be the connection to many others later on that God can reach with the gospel. In fact, Cornelius has his whole family reach, right? We're going to talk about this later on because it's, it's further down a few chapters. But you've got the jailer whose family's reached as well. Many times we miss the forest from the trees when it comes to evangelism. What's interesting is that the conversion of Sergius Paulus, in a sense, may have directed the next people that Paul evangelized. Some have suggested that he may have actually asked Paul to reach his relatives out in Pisidian Antioch. Here's another point of application. People that serve with you may quit or stop doing ministry with you. I think anybody that's ever been any time in the church and ministered faithfully needs to understand this point. There's a lot to draw from here. There are many people that start off red-hot passionate to serve Christ and they burn out quickly. They're the ones that are highs and lows in life, right? They're very, very high, very, very low. They are not even keel much at all. One day it's, I love the Lord, the next day, Lord slay me, I'm Job. I mean, that's really the two extremes you find these people in. Some people may all of a sudden quit for many reasons. It could be they just don't feel it anymore. Let me tell you, not a single person that's ever been faithful in ministry knows that you're always going to feel it. In fact, if that's what you're going off of, whether you serve Christ, is whether you feel like it today, many of us would not be gathering this morning. Not every Sunday do you come in and you're ready to worship. Is that correct? You're just excited to be in the house of the Lord every Sunday. Or when you get up for school and you're teaching in the school, you don't get up with that exact mentality. Am I correct? It's not whether you feel it. It's whether you're obedient and faithful. You see, a change of circumstances can change the ways that some people can serve. Someone may have to start working on Sundays. That actually happens. We're not legalists. We want you here. But it does happen. They may say, face a very serious illness. Well, that might limit your ministry. Maybe there's a loss of a loved one. Husband and wife are ministering together and one passes away. Is that going to make it more difficult? Sure it will. 
It could be as simple as being homesick. I don't get enough time at home with the wife or the kids or the husband or the kids, whichever one. Listen, church, we need to be gracious in how we approach this. We need to be gracious in how we approach others and their ministry and to do our best to not condemn when somebody may have to step away for a while. We don't always have to write off people long term. Just what happened with John Mark later on, he becomes a faithful partner once again in the ministry. We don't know what happened between those two things, but we know that God restores him into the ministry again. Maybe those people are away for a season. They'll be back, Lord willing, in the future, just as John Mark was. As a side note, if I can offer a word of advice that I think many times is missed by people in the church. If you've given up a ministry... Let's say there's some task that you've done in the church and you said, you know what, I don't feel like doing it anymore or I can't do it anymore. Ask yourself the question why you gave it up and be honest with that. It has to be a reason that makes sense before God, not before others necessarily. Did you do it just for not, the feelings just not being there anymore? That's not a valid reason. Another thing I would strongly caution for couples and families in the church is when you say you can't commit because you're not spending time with your children, what do you mean by that? Is your idea of spending time with your children and family endless hours of television? Because I'm telling you right now, folks, a lot of the reason we don't minister many times for the kingdom is we hide behind these other things we would rather do because they're easier. I don't want you to put the church before family. I know that God prioritizes the family and that if I don't lead my home well, I shouldn't be a pastor either. I understand that. But one thing that I think we do many times without even realizing it is we hide behind certain things because we don't want to do the more difficult things God may be calling us to do. It may very well be that you're busy and you can't spend enough time with your family. Only you know that with God. If I can offer a piece of advice for couples in the church that I know has been really a practical thing for me, is ladies, if you have a husband that wants to serve in the church in some way and he has a great bond with other men in the church, realize that your marriage is going to be benefited by that bond. And you pulling him away from that is actually going to hurt you all. The same is true the other way. Gentlemen, we need to let our wives spend time with other ladies and that's one of the reasons why discipleship groups are so important. To build that relationship with others. So that when they come home, if you will, that marriage is intact too. There are so many things that are missed by people in the church. They think, well, if I just keep this person to myself longer, they'll do better. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some of the greatest benefits that I've seen in the church, and my wife will tell you this, she asks sometimes that I spend time with other guys. And here's why. She realizes that there's a better version of Roman that comes home after I spend some time with some guys. Men and women, we need to be, be willing to understand these things. We need to be honest in our feedback on this. 
There are certain people in the church you hang out with, you're reignited again. Like I said, there are some people, they will boost you in ministry. Others will put the fire right out. The saddest thing is when it's a family member that puts the fire out. We as a church ought to be encouraging one another, stirring one another up to good works. How are you doing in that area? Be careful. Your comments about the ministry to your spouse could very well have further implications than you think. In fact, some of the bad experiences people have, they've relayed those things to others and others don't have that same experience. And guess what? There's a confusion there. One of the hardest things sometimes I believe in the church is that so many people base their experiences on somebody else's experience rather than actually working through the process themselves. Well, I don't think you should do that because, well, did you give up your heart to that ministry or did you just sign up because you felt like you should have done it because nobody else was doing it? You see, your heart reveals a lot of this. There are joyous moments and moments of despair and many times maybe even depression in ministry. Based off of those experiences, not the reason you and I should or shouldn't serve. Use the opportunities given to you, just as Paul did here. When people said, brother, give us a word, Paul stepped up to the plate. Be ready to, will, to step up and actually give the message. Number two, the message. Verses 16 through 41. Like I said, we're just going to read through this. We're not going to comment on every single verse. We'd be here for a few hours. All right? 16 through 41. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them the king, the son of Kish, Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel, Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. 
He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. And it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you should not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. What's fascinating here is Paul just comes right out and preaches a sermon to these people. The irony is preaching a sermon about a sermon this morning. Hopefully it's not three times as long. Paul was prone to preach a long time, actually. In fact, if you read another text, uh, you had someone fall asleep and actually die from one of his sermons. The benefit of the Apostle Paul is he, could, he had the, the, the gift of apostleship and the man was alive again. I've wondered what a conversation between Spurgeon and Paul would have been like, though, on this especially with how long the sermons could be and Spurgeon's take on it. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. This is Spurgeon's quote right here on sermons. A man with a great deal of well-prepared matter will probably not exceed 40 minutes. When he has less to say, he will go on for 50 minutes. And when he has absolutely nothing, he will need an hour to say it in. And my personal favorite, watch and pray, says the text. Go to sleep, says the sermon. Now you guys are watching your clocks. All right, we'll finish, all right? Paul comes right out here and s spells it right out for these people, right? He starts off by saying, God chose Abraham and the nation of Israel. And then he talks about God's blessing of the nation of Israel, that he exalted his people. God's redemption from Egypt and the promise of a land. By the way, they've never received all of it just yet. So that's why we know that promise is still in the future. God's choosing of David as a man after his own heart. And God's sending of Jesus from the lineage of David. Paul also connects the baptism of John, which paved the way to Jesus Christ, and his rejection, death, burial, and resurrection. Paul connects Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Quoting David himself in Psalm chapter 2 and 16, and also Isaiah chapter 55. As Constable points out, Paul used raised up in two different senses in this speech. In verses 33 and 37, he spoke of God raising up Jesus as the promised Messiah. In Psalm 2-7, it refers to God similarly raising up David as Israel's king. 
Second, Paul spoke in verses 30 and 34 of God raising up Jesus from the dead. You see, Paul goes right to the ultimate exhortation. That is that you need to believe the gospel. You need to trust Christ. In fact, Paul even includes the prophetic warning here at the end, right? He says, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Paul is taking the Old Testament and warning them with it. Why? Because it says, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. The irony is not to be missed in this text when Paul quotes that. So how does this all turn out? Well, number three, the results, verses 42 through 52. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from the region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. These people were excited to hear this gospel message the Gentiles were. They were begging to hear it again. Man, if people were like that today. If people were begging to hear the word of God, they couldn't wait for Sunday. They couldn't wait to hear more from God. That kind of interest in the church would fascinate any pastor. People followed both Paul and Barnabas wanting to hear more from them, and apparently some believe the gospel, as we see here in the text. And we're encouraged by Paul and Barnabas to keep going in God's grace. Listen, believer, sometimes that's all you and I need. is an encouragement to keep going in God's grace. There's a lot that just absolutely pummels us. But you've got to keep going. You have to keep going. If not for your sake, for the sake of others. And even those that have gone before you as an example. What's amazing here is the next Sabbath, the whole city shows up. They can't wait to hear what Paul's going to talk to them about. 
And this word of God that Paul preaches causes envy from the Jewish community. In fact, the devout Jewish people who rejected the message of Messiah started tearing at Paul's message and railing against it, causing controversy and pushing back on everything that he had just said. No, Jesus is not the Messiah that's declared in the Old Testament. He's wrong. That would be what, probably the equivalent of how they push back. Paul simply re re responded with the importance that he, as a man on mission, came to them first to share the gospel as a first priority. But since they didn't want to receive this gospel message or the promise of eternal life, they were now open to share it with the Gentiles. This is what created the excitement for the Gentiles listening to this. Oh, you don't want eternal life? Are you kidding me? Yes! Please tell me more about hope beyond this life. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. This is a God's election clearly revealed here in this text. In the rejection of the gospel by the Jewish people and the belief of the gospel by the Gentiles. Reminder, believer, you didn't choose where you were born. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose the demographic that you grew up under. You didn't choose, ultimately, many of the things that you want to take credit for. And God had you in the place that he did to hear the gospel message, and here you are this morning. That's how God works. There's no accident that other Gentiles were there listening as Paul declared this. The text tells us that the gospel spread throughout the region and caused the Jewish people that rejected the gospel message to push Paul and Barnabas out. This is becoming an embarrassment. They're taking over too much. They brought persecution on Paul and Barnabas and run the, ran them out of town. These men moved on to Iconium and were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. They weren't deflated like many of us do when we face hardships. If it was the modern Christian that faced this, Jesus, come take me home. I'm ready. Not these men. They were filled with joy. They were rejoicing over counting, being counted worthy to suffer persecution for Christ. What cowards we have in America. What cowards we have in American Christianity at that. We're whining about everything. These men faced persecution for their faith and moved on to the next city of Iconium, which is about 90 miles away. Look, there are always people more interested in what we have to say when it comes to the gospel, as we mentioned before, but we need to be aware of the pushback that may come from that. Not everybody's going to love what you have to say. In fact, a lot of the things that Christians say are not loved by many, many in society. I don't know why we're so shocked. Listen, believer, if we believe abortion is murder, which I believe it is, and I believe Scripture clearly spells that out, 
Why would we not want to ban the whole thing? Why do Christians play these games? I don't get it. Well, let's ban most of them, not all of them. Why aren't we banning the whole thing? If we really believe life begins at conception, then let's put our money where our mouth is. If we're so against sexual promiscuity, why are we not living upright lives as believers? If we're so against gay marriage, why are our heterosexual marriages not lasting? Look, folks, I'm not here to condemn anybody. It breaks my heart that this goes on. But we as a church need to be different for a reason. God's called us to be different. We're not different just because we flipped a coin and decided we're going to do something different. We open the Word of God and we do what it says. The question we ought to ask ourselves is when the pressure is on, how do we respond to it? If you think the pressure's on right now, just wait a few more years. You know how a lot of people go, it'll get better. I think when I grew up in America, things I thought that were crazy, I would have never imagined to be what, what are going on right now. I would have never assumed in my wildest dreams that we would have a debate about whether boys are boys and girls are girls. Never in my wildest dreams as a pastor did I think this would be even a conversation in America today. And the fact that we have polls and debates online over this? Is there any debate? I don't think so. I don't believe God had any debate on that. And he made them male and female. Wow, right from the beginning. Says it clear as day. So as we close, here's my question to all of us. How do you respond under pressure? How do you respond under pressure? Specifically, the pressure to compromise your faith. Do you keep it quiet that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Would most people on your Facebook profile not even know you're a Christian based on what you post? Would your coworkers even know you're a Christian based on how you respond to them? Do you find yourself giving up on certain conversations because you're afraid of being attacked? There will always be pressures that you and I face. The question is, are we rejoicing in the midst of that pressure, or are we folding under that pressure? Are you falling deeper in despair, believer, when the going gets tough? You come under pressure, and the very thing you need at that time is the Holy Spirit, so why are you ignoring His Word? Why are you asking for God's help apart from His Word? Let me tell you right now, if there's one thing that I think is a big, big issue in the church is the lack of God's word in people's lives. Why do I stress it as much as I do as a pastor? Because I literally believe it's more important than my preaching. I'm only taking what God's already written and declaring it to you. Hey, guess what? You can go ahead and check it out for yourself tomorrow. Amen. And I thank all the men 
in church history that decided the Bible was important to pass down to the average, everyday person. I thank these men from the bottom of my heart for what they went through to make sure that I can read the Word of God. We've, we have our Bibles just sitting up there like, who cares? So here's another question I have. Why, for some of you that are online, why did you stop coming to church? Is it all because of the pandemic or are there possible reasons outside of that? Look, we can, we can have valid reasons for things, but at times they're just merely excuses. Maybe it's the fear of the pandemic, maybe it's not. I don't know that, only you and God do. The choices you make to daily compromise your faith determine how you respond when the pressure's on. Look, if you're looking to see how you're going to respond in five years when it gets a lot worse, look at today and how you're responding right now. If you're freaking out, guess what? Turn that up a notch. It's going to be even worse. That is not the right response right now. You need to press into the Word of God, get into fellowship with other believers, strengthen your faith. And quit whining. Rejoice that you're counted worthy when that happens. As the old hymn says, take it to the Lord in prayer. Listen to what Ian Bounds says as we close. Trouble and prayer are closely related. Trouble often drives men to God in prayer while prayer is but the voice of men in trouble. Let's pray.